0: What Trump said, I I, both, I think I could explain it to him where he'd understand Bitcoin and totally change his mind. But what he said about Facebook, I, I tend to agree with. They are creating
1: something a bank would create. They keep the float. Uh, it's based on the dollar. There's nothing crypto about it. So I'm glad he doesn't like Libra. I just wish he understood Bitcoin. Yeah, look, the, the best
2: parallel I can come up with is Napster, right? When you think of file sharing back, uh, you know, 20, uh, 25 years ago, which was uh, a lot of people didn't like it, but it was easy to shut down and that there was a company behind it, right? There was a CEO to go and put pressure on. Um, that's very similar to what Libra is experiencing now, right? There's Facebook to go after. There's other corporations that are participating that you can pressure and, re- and regulate. With Bitcoin, there is no CEO. There is no headquarters. You can't send a letter or call somebody in for a hearing. And so I think that the completely decentralized nature of the asset that is what makes it so compelling to people um, and we're seeing that kind of play out right now and it's really highlighting the beauty of bitcoin
3: All right, and we're live. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is Pierre Rochard with Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. Bitstein, how's it going?
4: Uh, it's going okay. Number go somewhat up, but somewhat sideways.
3: <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't quite know how to feel. Today, <sighs> to discuss technical analysis and price predictions, we have Stefan Levera and Katana. How are you guys?
2: Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for welcoming us back to your show. Yeah,
3: yeah thanks expert. for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. G- given the volatility with the price, I thought it might be advantageous to have someone on the show who's a few hours ahead of us and can kind of tell
2: us what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We are able to offer analysis of uh, Bitcoin in the future. So, you know, that is uh, one of our service offerings.
3: Yeah. So uh, you two started uh, a new company, Ministry of Nodes, and I saw the announcements. So I knew that I had to get you guys on the podcast to discuss it. And uh, to uh, get your, you know, why you guys are building this and where you see this going
2: Um, and yeah, take it away. Sure. So look, as you guys know, it's been a difficult road for many people when they get started in Bitcoin. Typically the newbie just buys Bitcoin and leaves it on the exchange, right? Or they might buy it and just hold it on a Trezor if you're lucky, right? And so that was really the need that Katan and I had spotted. And we thought that, okay, look, there's one class of people who can read and learn from an online how-to guide, but some people just want in-person hand-holding and guidance. And so in some way, that's essentially what our workshop is targeted to do. It's there to try to hand-hold the beginner level and intermediate level Bitcoiners and try to take them to that next level and try to teach at the same time about, okay, why is it important to run your node? Because most people wouldn't, un- would, they wouldn't understand that. They wouldn't even have a concept of that. Katan, do you want to add anything?
0: Um, so, yeah, for, for me as well, I, I found that a lot of people do actually want to be handheld. Um, they want to kind of just uh, have someone to even talk to about certain things. Um, so I thought that, you know what, look, we'll we'll run these workshops, we'll run one-on-one coaching sessions, and we'll kind of take you through some of the pitfalls that other people have made in the past or have gone down. And then so we can sort of, I guess, um, help you maneuver through this um, uh, sort of wave. Um, The other thing that I wanted to make mention is that, so today, uh, I guess you might be sitting with your account balance and thinking that it's not that much. Um, so, but it can change very quickly, very fast. So you can, you might have something say, for example, $5,000, but that can quickly turn into 20, 30, 40, $50,000 very quickly. Um, you might want to speak to somebody, um, on how to manage that.
3: Yeah, because the the risk reward trade off changes when the price goes up, right? Of you had coins sitting on your computer or in a hot That's wallet right. somehow, um, and that or, or or in an, a, on an exchange,
0: yeah, um, or an which exchange, the
3: worst, or single signature hardware wallet, which is kind of vulnerable to loss, um, but once. And you you might think when the price is low, you're like, well, I only need one hardware wallet. I'm not going to spend $80 on another one. Uh, but when the price goes up, then it, you might have to justify some additional expenses. That's right. Awesome. And um, I saw that you guys were carrying the uh, cold card uh, hardware wallet on your uh, store. Had, had it been hard to get it in Australia because of the international shipping?
0: Yeah. So I, I when I tried to, um, you know, I guess, uh, buy a cold card. Uh, firstly, it didn't accept PayPal. So they were a Bitcoin only, so that's fine. Um, but then as you sort of, uh, buy it, the costs quickly sort of go up, um, particularly when it comes to shipping. Um, and so then I actually got slugged with a tax as well. So import duties for, for um, goods and services taxes and, and those sorts of things. So, we just wanted to buy it in bulk for people um and then we can distribute that out to uh various uh, whoever's interested so i i found it very difficult to to buy it myself just one so that's why i thought you know what let's let's buy a, a multiple and then we can help australians out awesome
4: is it as difficult with uh, the other hardware wallets or is it just Coldcard nah.
0: specifically it's specifically cold card at this point um trezor you can get pretty, pretty quickly and pretty easily. There's uh, resellers, but I think cold card is something that um, is a product that I've been playing around with and I'm, I'm really, really liking it. So I think um, having that in Australia, uh, it, it's, it's not, it, it would be good.
2: Yeah. The other thing with that is typically newbies will just get a, a, a treasure or if they're a shitcoin trader, they'll be on a ledger. Whereas you know, Katana and I kind of like the features of the cold card a bit better. And typically, the more advanced Bitcoiners tend to use and recommend the cold card. So for us, that's also something we can sell on the workshop, but then also, sorry, sell on the website. But then also teach how to use the cold card in the workshops or in the coaching as well to kind of show them some of the features and, you know, handhold them through that, handhold them through that process.
4: Absolutely, I've found that uh, even just the process of setting up a hardware wallet in general. Uh, forces someone to have to go through the, the motions of really learning hands-on specific Bitcoin concepts that can be a little bit tricky to just get conceptually. Um and I imagine with cold card, because of the uh more advanced features you can do, you can also, you know, uh help people pick up on some pretty advanced uh Bitcoin uh uh patterns
2: a lot of people just don't know It's kind of like a lot of people are new and they don't even know what they don't know. So a quick example, actually, Katan recently presented here at Bitcoin Sydney. And so Bitcoin Sydney is starting to now have a bit more volume in terms of people who are turning up, right? Because again, the price is often a big driver of that. And from my observation of Katan's presentation, which was basically at a level beyond what most of the Bitcoiners in Sydney were at, right? Many of them now, okay. Some of them are more advanced and they sort of knew it and they got it. But many of them didn't understand these, some of the ideas around, oh, okay. uh, Like here are some of the attack vectors on a hardware wallet. If you're keeping your bitcoins on a hardware wallet and also some of those ideas, many of them were not aware of this idea that if you use say the Trezor, then Trezor knows your balance. Right. They, they hadn't kind of clicked that in their mind, because as a newbie, you don't really think about that. You just think, oh, my my bitcoins just live at this address when really that's even that's not accurate. Right. Bitcoins live on the UTXO. Right. So that's that some of these complexities are things that we're going to try and teach newbies and kind of make them aware of these ideas.
3: That makes sense. So what, what is your approach for uh, maximizing privacy with a
2: hardware wallet? Yeah, Katan, do you want to touch on this one?
0: So um, for us, I think uh, a- at this point where we're, we're going to use cold cards, we're going to, um, I guess, teach how to use those, but also uh, things like uh, uh, electron Personal Server um, and VPNs and Tor and how to, uh, I guess, use those effectively. Um, there's no point have running a node on Tor if you're going to use uh, the one Tor address, for example, for, for a good, you know, six to 12 months, you constantly need to be refreshing that. So I think those are some of the privacy tips and tools that we can show our users or our customers and say, okay, well, this is something you might want to consider, um, when you're, when you're, um, you know, looking at your privacy and, and wanting to get that privacy back.
3: Awesome. So like one of the controversies among Bitcoiners with privacy is KYC on exchanges. And like I I personally, I've, I've done KYC on a number of different exchanges, um, but I'm also just a very publicly, you know, pro Bitcoin person. So I've never I've always been under my real name anyway. Uh, and it never really felt like I had much privacy. Uh, maybe, maybe a mistake on my part, but... It hasn't had any negative consequences so far, knock on wood. Uh, but what do you guys think about uh, the issue of KYC? And do you, you know when someone says, "Hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin," do you? How do you handle that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Pierre. We have spoken a little bit about this idea and believe that <laughs> where possible, we should try to help people maintain some level of pseudonymity, where currently they don't. Uh, but again, yeah, so typically we have to just sort of point them towards an exchange because there's no liquidity or volume here on some of the Australian, no KYC options, but that may change. Hopefully that may change. So there is BISC and I occasionally check out BISC here and there just to see if there's volume there. Sometimes there's just no one there willing to sell um, Bitcoins. So how's a newbie going to get that Bitcoin, right? And even for, for a newbie to use BISC, if you've uh, if you've actually used it, I'm not sure if the listeners have gone into it, but essentially, you still need to have some small amount of Bitcoin in your BISC wallet before it even lets you try to buy some. And the reason is because of the escrow system that BISC uses. So it's kind of like it's that start problem. How do you even get your first? little chunk of Bitcoin that you can deposit into your Bisc wallet, which you can then use to buy more with, right? So now on the Bisc website, if you look at their website, it says things like, well, go to a meetup and get some of your first bitcoins there or get from your friends and family, right? And okay, fair enough. You can use that, but it's just not as the problem here in Australia is there's no one providing liquidity there. So that's something that either we have to just try and drive like as a community in the Australian Bitcoin scene is drive use of that. and. Even with HODL, HODL, that is only just starting to build up. So again, Huddle Huddle is another non-KYC option. Um, so hopefully there'll be more volume there. But again, it's kind of a question of trying to build that up so that people have some, like we can't just point them there and then there's no one there to buy it off. That's kind of, that's not great, is it? And so also there are companies like Azteco and fast Bitcoins and things like that. So I think Fast, Azteco may be looking to launch here in Australia as well, but at the moment they're not here. So, th- yeah, there's not great options there in terms of Australian exchanges. Yeah, so you've got things like Independent Reserve BTC Markets. There's also uh, one of my re- one of my podcast guests, Alex Svetsky, and actually, Pierre, you might have met him in San Francisco as well. He's running Amber, which is like the Australian stacking Sats, kind of kind of like an Australian cash app. So again, that'll be KYC. But um, but our hope is if we're going to point people down that pathway of KYC exchange, then we can at least show them, okay, here's how you coin join it and then put it into your own cold storage.
0: Yeah, I also wanted to make mention of the fact that it's it's important to be aware of what that entails. Um, I, 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 I sort of uh, alluded to in my article um, that if you're going to use an exchange, understand what the ramifications of that could potentially be. Like it, it's important to understand that if you are trading on an, um, on the on an exchange that every buy or sell will be um transferred to the ato like that they they will have those uh i guess um trades sent to the ato or some sort of government agency and you just want to just let the user make them aware that this is potentially what is happening so it's just about that education piece as well
3: Awesome. So uh, I think that like I- I've thought about the how to, how we're going to get rid of KYC AML. And really, <laughs> the only way this is going to happen is if we just replace these fiat government currencies entirely. And then we have a completely, you know, circular economy uh, uh, of uh, Bitcoin and then there's no KYC AML involved. But anything short of that, like the moment that these non-KYC uh, services... Gain any level of popularity, I think that the government's going to come after them, um, and it's not great in the sense that they, they will be able to see people who use their bank account to facilitate uh, transactions on Bisc and on these other services, where they'll just have the suspicious, you know, number of little transactions that were Bitcoin trades, um, and like that. So to me, that's not even like a great workaround. Um, you still have to use the banking system and provide your identity to it. Uh, so, and then on, even on the cash side, like the problem to me with the cash is just the the danger of getting robbed in person. Like when you've got uh, <laughs> digital and physical cash uh, you're supposed to be switching hands. Uh, so, like we've heard stories of people getting uh, robbed through local bitcoins or whatever it is. Um, so, it just seems to me that like the knee jerk anti-AML KYC uh, exchange thing is like a little overblown in the sense that, well, think about your threat model, like maybe your family, you know, buying Bitcoin from a a local meetup might actually be more risky than buying Bitcoin on an exchange. Um, You don't know who is going to be at that meetup or anything like that. Um, But anyway,
0: Um, so I still think that the best way of, um, getting Bitcoin is to earn it. Um, let, us not, um, negate that as an option. Oh, Um,
3: absolutely. like BTC pay server has helped tremendously
0: in that regard. Exactly. Um, so I think earning Bitcoin, if you've got a skill, if you've got a talent, if you've got something you want to give to the world, demand Bitcoin in payment for it, that's the best way you can, that, that shows that you are providing value.
3: And I, what I found surprising is we haven't seen more people who provide like purely digital services um, than they can provide that in any way possible. Like I had a friend in Egypt who sold uh, 3D artwork online and accepted Bitcoin for it. But like he's he's like a little anecdote. I'm surprised it hasn't taken off that. Hey, and even like if you really want to get hardcore about it over tour you could set up a Web store uh, that sells digital services over Tor And through Bitcoin only, or even open Bazaar as well as
0: another option.
4: I mean, BTC pay server has Tor built in now, so it'll, it'll make a hidden service for you.
3: Um, so let's see, um, did you guys want to touch on other aspects of uh, your new venture? I want to hear about the uh, workshops and what the format's going to be like for this.
2: So a couple of ideas, we're still obviously Katana and I are still working on what exactly will be included in that because you've got probably four or five hours worth of time. So it's kind of like, what's the max value that we can get? Um, if you guys have listened to that episode, SLP 71, Intro to Bitcoin and Austrian Thought, I'll probably include some of that material in the workshop and just deliver that live because I think that's kind of a good intro from an economic point of view. So I'm going to offer at least a little bit of the basics around that. Um, and then high level our structure is things like the practical parts of it, like how, how do you, you know, rule one of Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. And then kind of running your node, rule two of Bitcoin is not your node, not your rules, right? So that's kind of like the two rules. Um, some of the privacy basics, like what is a UTXO, how, you know, how, and maybe a walkthrough of how to do Wasabi coin joins or maybe Samurai as well. We'll, we'll kind of pick uh, that. Uh, And then potentially some basics around lightning as well. So Katar might demo how to use see lightning and spark say. Um, And then, uh, yeah, so that's kind of high level what we're looking at, what we're thinking to do for like a kind of four or five hour workshop. And the idea being, you know, if you're new to Bitcoin, um, or maybe if you're new, if you sort of know a little bit about Bitcoin, but you want to take it to the next level, that's essentially what the workshop is there for. I think it's also important to remember that part of our challenge here is convincing people why it's important and why they should drop the money to come for a workshop because the thing is if you're a newbie you might not realize the risk you're taking by just leaving your coins on the exchange they might just think oh hey i've got my bitcoin i don't need to worry about you know any of this other stuff what's this running a node what's this like what is the economics of bitcoin who cares about that right who cares about coin joining they won't even know that they need to coin join right so it's kind of there's a lot of things that kind of are required that we have we have to kind of bring them around to and you know, why is it important? And so part of that is we're going to be writing articles and things. Part of that is just guidance. Uh, there's just a few things around that. Did you want to add anything, Katan?
0: Yeah, so I think for, for me, um, one of the things that I wanted to sort of uh, draw some things is to use my uh, experience as a pilot um, with... Uh, uh, some of the concepts that I've been taught as as a pilot um, into Bitcoin. So one of the things you'll learn in aviation is very quickly um, things about responsibility, ownership, and accountability. Uh, those things are sort of uh, as a pilot in command of an aircraft, the buck stops with you. There's no government there to hold your hand. Like your life is on the line here. So I think if we take that ownership and that accountability and that um, a responsibility for our own coins, that is something that we will, uh, look to, you know, advise you and educate you on. Um, cause that's the best way of, uh, you know, insur- That's the, what I feel is probably the best insurance policy for you as a sovereign individual is to up your education. So come along to these workshops and level up your education so that you don't get caught out on something that you weren't expecting. One of the other things that we do, we, we say in aviation is prior planning preve- is, is the seven. It's the seven P's. It's called prior planning prevents piss poor performance. So prevent these things from happening by planning meticulously, but also educating yourself and having that mental plan in aviation, you can't just stop on the side of the road for two minutes, gather your thoughts. You have to, it's gotta be instinctive. So we're making, we're trying to help you make Bitcoin instinctive. Uh, and it's really difficult at this point in time, but uh, I'm sure over time, things will, if you keep at it, you will get better at it, obviously. Um, and then, the other thing that we have in aviation is what's known as a biennial flight review Uh, so this thing is where you have every two years you go up with an instructor you can't pass or fail Um, they don't sort of uh, take your license away from you if you're not you know up to scratch but what happens is you yourself understand that okay i am a good enough pilot to be able to conduct myself safely um the same thing in bitcoin you yourself will understand over a time period whether you are being safe with your forty fifty sixty thousand dollar balance that may eventuate when you first started with only two thousand for instance so it's just about making having these health checks every you know so often and how to quickly and um, get to that learning curve as quickly as possible so I think that's probably why you'd want to attend some of these workshops over the long term as well
2: the other aspect here is the game is changing constantly right yeah the coin, the ability to do coin joins the ability to do this that and the other you know btc paste over having tour on it all these little things they're they're changing all the time and how many people have the time right because they might they've got a normal job they've got a family they've got friends they've got their own life and their own hobbies to look after the idea here is hey why not put that onto some people who are into bitcoin and following it closely and know about some of the changes and some of the new technologies that are becoming available to keep yourself up to date so you can spend less time having to um you know worry about some of these things and i think it's difficult for many people as well when they're coming in and running a node the first time and you might have just like little common problems that come up as well things like oh okay um where do you put your data directory or how do you turn pruning on or off little kind of things like that that if you're an experienced bitcoiner you sort of know you you, over time you might have run various nodes so you kind of know how to do those configuration options and how to do those little things but if you're a newbie this is this might be a game changer that will stop you from even running a node because you might have tried it one time hit a difficulty and then just been like no you know what that's too hard i'm just gonna leave them on the exchange
3: yeah, one of the questions from the audience uh, kind of relates to that. He says, uh, the fees of me taking the Bitcoin off of the exchange is not worth it. What do you, what do you make of that? What's your response to
2: that? As in the Bitcoin transaction fee? Or the... I, I think
3: that's what he means. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, some exchanges cop that for their customer right now. All right? They just take that um, or for some other exchanges, I think they build it into their model and that's part of the cost or part of the cost to you, the customer. But then ultimately, it's, that's where we have to teach people, well, it's not your keys, not your coins. That's rule one of Bitcoin. So if you leave them on the exchange, well, you are leaving yourself open to getting wrecked. Exchanges should also probably be more
3: sophisticated with the fee estimation and just give you the option of doing one Satoshi per byte. Like, as long as you understand what that means, um, you know, it might be like an, an advanced configuration thing, but that way you don't have to, you know, like I've, I've sent... I've sent Bitcoin transactions for a penny this year where it was sending a non-negligible amount of inputs and outputs.
2: Yeah, definitely. But I think, again, this comes back to like what you and I as quote-unquote hardcore Bitcoiner people who are on Bitcoin Twitter, we represent a very small subset. And I think that's the difficulty because a lot of businesses, they are designing for an overall UX for a normie customer, right? For a customer who is not down with okay what even is one sat per byte right so and i think that's that's obviously the next kind of trend is bitcoin wallets bitcoin services offering in the advanced setting like hide it somewhere in the advanced settings for those people who want that um but for the typical newbie the typical user is not going to know that and they're not even going to understand that concept and they won't even they'll think oh what I thought i withdrew it to my personal wallet how come it's not there yet and it's like still stuck in the mempool right and so it's it's yeah Yeah. hopefully lightning can change some of this as well some exchanges are enabling lightning as well so that will be really cool to see but then even for lightning you've got to think about incoming channel capacity and people people haven't thought about that too so again there's it is just we're still so early
3: Michael, do you, you want to add
4: anything? Question? I was just listening to that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so I think ultimately we just have to. Part of this is the difficulty of taking ourselves out of, you know, because Katan and I and you guys as well have been in this game for what, six years or more now. We have to kind of take ourselves out of that six year Bitcoin mindset and think what are the things that a newbie needs to know and really simplifying that down to the basic kind of what can I deliver in a four to five hour session, let's say, that is not going to overwhelm them as well because it needs to be manageable what we're teaching. Uh, but hopefully the idea is you come in for a one day workshop or like a five hour workshop or whatever it is. And at the end of that, you have some basic knowledge, but it it, it is just going to be a bit of a iteration process to figure out exactly what is the best material. And we may even have to just kind of have a lot of material ready and then just cater it to the person because sometimes you have to meet someone where they're at right, if they're a total newbie, never touched Bitcoin before, it will probably take enough time just to show them how to even just use a normal Trezor wallet on the standard Trezor web wallet interface, let alone doing, you know, EPS <laughs> setup, yeah. right, because we can, we can all sit here virtually signaling about how we're like perfectly you know, tall, EPS never use the Electrum public server, etc, but for a total newbie, it's just it's it's a it's a bridge too far.
3: Yeah, so one of the questions here now is why is privacy and coin join not automatic and fully by default for the inexperienced average person?
2: It's a good question. Ultimately there are different people working on different tools. And obviously, remember, none of these tools is a silver bullet that The reality of it is we are still that early that if you want to do, say, coin joining, well, now you can't do lightning because the wallets that do coin joining don't do lightning as well. And then the wallets that do lightning don't do coin join. Right. So it's kind of they're all everyone's still kind of working on a way to make it cohesive. And that hasn't been done yet. And then if you look at, say, hardware wallets as well, hardware wallet support for things like coin joining and lightning, that's still coming. Right. So if you look at, say, Crypto Advance, with uh, Stepan Snyjerev and Moritz, they're working on things like that. Um, but the yeah, the, I guess the short answer is essentially that there are there is no one pathway, and that there are many, many different tools. And being a Bitcoiner in 2019 means you need to know and understand multiple different tools and understand what's going on at that level. Obviously, there are people working on more intuitive and easy interfaces, but then you won't get the advanced features with that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's probably going to be tough for somebody to code up a really nice interface for for newcomers, as well as have all these um, advanced features as well. Uh, That's going to take some time, and who knows if we'll even get to A stage where, you know, that one product is going to provide everything. I think there'll be multiple products that provide multiple things. Um, But it just, uh, uh, let's see how this plays out.
2: Actually, I had another thing I was keen to just touch on as well. Like, you were mentioning this earlier, Pierre, around AML laws and so on. Obviously, I am anti-AML laws. I want market regulation, not government regulation. But I think i am i'm i'm sort of with you there i think that it is overly optimistic to think that everyone could just say hey no bitcoin company should do any kyc every Bitcoiner should just go full no kyc i i just think that you're not gonna that's not realistic we're not going to get volume right how else is say say you're a millionaire who wants to drop in you know 50k 100k how are you gonna you're gonna take 50k and buy that on a cash deal i mean sure you you might do like okay 1,000, 1,000, 1,000. But even still, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And so some people are just going to have to, you know, take the KYC, right? And that's, that's, that's the trade-off people many people have to make because there's not really any, um, not like very easily feasible options. Or if you do, you have to get quite technical and learn how to do them pr- correctly. And that takes time. And the reality of it is when you get when you new, how many people are going to spend that time. It's more like they start out the newbie way, make the mistake and then learn to do something in a more you know, secure way or private way. One, one possibly
3: interesting model for people who are like earning a salary at a company is that the company offers buying Bitcoin from them essentially, uh, but really receiving your wages as uh, Bitcoin. There's like Bitwage doing this. Uh, so then you don't have to do the KYC because the KYC is done with the company
2: already. Yeah, exactly. That was um, actually Alina Vernova mentioned that as well. Um, but yeah, that's a good idea as well because your company already, your employer already has kyc due, so they already know who you are. Well, not all of them, but typically that's the normal setup. <laughs> and um, um, there is actually a startup in Australia who do something similar. So I think it's called getpaidinbitcoin.com.au au, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's the, the one. They, yeah and they offer a service where you might take a percentage of your pay in bitcoin so you might with your like on your employer's accounting and payroll team you might set them up with two separate bank accounts one is like your fiat bank account and one is like this get paid in bitcoin thing so then say a hundred bucks out of every pay goes to them and that automatically gets sent to you so that's a, that's the a way you could do it even um in a for the european hodlers out there there's bitter right get bitter with uh, Ruben, so we met Ruben in uh, San Francisco as well. Um, but I think he's got a very simple, very simple service as well because basically you don't, you push. I think you uh, direct debit a certain amount of fiat money to that bank account, and with the reference code, that's where he knows to then send it to you. So there, there are little options with things like that. Uh, even actually another option is, um, there's a startup here or they've been going for a couple of years. He's one of my past interview guests as well, uh, Daniel Alexius. He runs this company called living room of Satoshi. So they're an Australian Bitcoin company where you can basically pay your bills or pay your credit card or even I think deposit to a bank account paying with Bitcoin. Now even with that, I think once you get over with all of these things, many of these things, if you go over certain thresholds, then AML laws start applying. So, I think it's like if you go over a certain amount, you have to KYC with him. Similarly, with even some of these kind of Azteco fast Bitcoin sorts of things, some of the rules there might be such that if you buy more than $1,000, you got a KYC. Or if you buy more than, say, uh, if you did like a lot of small buys to try and, you know, structure it to try and stay under the threshold, then theoretically they should be, you know, the AML regulators and so on will say, no, you've got to, you've got to KYC this person and everyone's got to be KYC. So that is, unfortunately the fiat reality that we're working in
4: and i think that is an important point that uh these are all fiat problems um and the fact is that uh, until we're fully jailbroken uh from the fiat system we do have to interface with those uh, draconian you know regulations and whatnot
2: oh yeah it is absurd it is completely absurd and you have to be well, I'm even kind of wary about some of this stuff. Like I've seen cases of people getting done for the money transmission laws, right? So they'll say, "Oh, you're operating an unlicensed exchange, and you got to KYC everyone," and oh, it's ridiculous. So, so that's why for me, I've really tried to stay away from doing uh, like cash deals as well, because I've just, you know, I didn't want to fall foul of any of that. So I basically just buy on an exchange, pull it out. Um, Quiet, quietly
4: stack sets and just let them, you know, they're, they're giving us the gift of, you know, having been able to, you know, quietly leave their system. Uh, You know, obviously they, they have various information on people who have bought through um, these, these regulated entities, uh, but they've just been, you know, digging their own grave uh, by doing so. So uh, that's nice. (laughs) And hopefully,
0: some of the laws in the future, I'm predicting they will change in the future. Uh, Whether that's a tightening or a loosening, we might go for a a curve through tightening and then it might loosen up. So I'll give you an example here. Uber was actually illegal in New South Wales, Um, but there was so much demand for Uber that the government had to just go, you know what? we can't do anything about this. Uh, We need to make it legal and we need to find ways of making it um, safe and better. So the laws do change over time and I'm expecting that to happen with Bitcoin as well.
4: Yeah. Yeah, the Uh, key uh, ones
2: are... Go on, go on.
4: Oh, I was going to say, you know, going back to some earlier stuff, like... Uh, with any any newbie is going to have to learn that there's sort of endless trade-offs and there is no that's perfect right. privacy, there is no perfect security, there's no perfect anything. and So there's always is a learning process. So even if there is a nice interface to help a newbie out, that's just stage one and they still have to, you know, be, uh, they, they still have to understand that they're going to have to move on past that given they have certain, you know, uh, demands out of the world such as you know privacy and security.
3: All right, we got an audience question here. What is the minimum amount of sats to have in one UTXO to not be considered dust in the future? How should we be thinking about our future fee burden? Um so like right now, you know, you can you can get transactions through at one satoshi per byte pretty easily, but the theory is that once we hit uh, the 40 million, or sorry, the 4 million uh, weight unit limit, and that's you know probably gonna be like 1.6 megabytes or whatever it is um, of transactions, then we'll, and we see this like happen occasionally where there's a backlog in the mempool um, and fees do spike. But I think that like, so you have to be adjusting this in real time I think that because like right now, you could say like, all right, ten satoshis per byte is the the kind of the floor I'm setting psychologically for where this will be in the future. Um, you know, in, it if I'm not urgently trying to make a transaction, because if you're if you're going to be like urgently making a transaction, you should set it like psychologically to like a hundred satoshis per byte and. Be ready to get gouged um, if you have high time preference with your future transactions, but <laughs> if you've got like low time preference for future transactions, like, I, I would probably be like anything, anything that will be uneconomical to spend, and that's subjective. Like because let's say, um, let's say it's like ten satoshis per byte, and let's say the transaction will be two hundred bytes. Um, so even like at, at, t- at two thousand satoshis, all right, well. Is it okay if you have 100,000 Satoshis and you're paying like basically 2% of the value as the uh, transaction fee? Uh, that might be okay for some people. Others might balk at that and they might, you know, want their minimum to be a million Satoshis or 10 million Satoshis uh, for that output so that they're paying a very small percentage of the value uh, to the miners in the future. Um, so like to me, it's it seems like on both parts of the equation, you have... Uh, good old Austrian economics, methodological individualism and subjectivism, uh, which means that there isn't really an objective answer to. Now, I, I know that on a technical level, there is you know, a dust limit, but we're talking about beyond that, because if you're getting close to that, then I think that you're your subjective preferences are wrong and you are being way <laughs> you're being a little crazy with your uh, bitcoin usage but um uh,
4: that yeah. being said i mean there could be I, I can imagine some kind of weird situation where you end up with various uh, very small utxos and you're trying to consolidate them and stuff like that you're goofed uh, if you've
3: got that right like yeah, but-
4: generally speaking yes yeah. so, you know i don't want to i don't want to judge people too hard i don't know what situations could be out there i think the dust Limit is what, like uh, five hundred forty six satoshis or something. There's some why, weird. Why are people you sending you
3: dust? Would be my question. Like, where have you gone wrong in life? That well, people once are you go to the dust?
4: moon, that's what you do. You send by, back rocks and dust and.
3: Well, rocks, yes. <laughs> I'm all about the rocks, but the the uh, the
4: dust. I think that like, it... so if I go buy you some like moon dust, you're not going to be happy. Only if it's a full rock. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I if
3: you're going to send me dust, send it on, you know, on Someone's uh, not on, light, on hand the hand lightning hand network,
2: hand not hand not on chain. <laughs> I'm curious as well to see how the model evolves there because, you know, everyone talks about wanting non-custodial lightning, but the there are difficulties associated with that right because then either some well someone's got to put up capital right like either the wallet host hosting provider is going to have to put up capital to say okay Pierre you started up a wallet with me I'm going to open a channel with you tying up some of my precious bitcoins or the other model is you okay you set up the wallet now you need to tie up some of your UTXO into a channel uh and obviously, like once you've got the channel open, yeah, you can do stuff with it. But then, even then, it's all that complexity around inbound channel, uh, inbound capacity versus out outbound capacity. The newbies aren't going to think of that. So I think a lot I, of newbies yeah, are, yeah, going to just go blue wallet, right?
3: I, I think autopilot is just going to solve all of that. So like, I think that that's just what you're looking at. Is it? You know, back in the day when you had a car, you had to go in front of the car and like crank it, crank the engine uh, to start it, and people would be like. Well, you know, my grandma's not going to be able to crank the engine to start the car. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Eventually, you'll eventually you'll have a, a keyless car where you just like walk in and you hit a start button. Uh, but uh, give it fifty years.
2: Yeah, you know what's really funny as well? Like you watch some of those news clips of. Um, I saw that clip recently. I think the guy's name. He's colloquially called Mister Wonderful, right? And he's all like, oh. I wouldn't buy this until it's, like, fully legal and everything is, like, fully legit. And, you know, that's why I buy stocks and bonds and whatever because I would – but then the other thing is all the investment opportunity is going to be now, right? The only – like This is where, like, a,
3: uh, a message that, like, people need to understand is that they need to adapt to Bitcoin. They can't like expect Bitcoin to adapt to them. They can't expect that like addresses are going to go away and they're going to have like, something easy to use instead of numbers and letters. Like, um, at some point, sure, there are marginal improvements that are going to happen to Bitcoin. But so far, it's been the case that you have to adapt to Bitcoin, uh, whether it's by holding your own keys or running your own node um, and, and all of this. But um, I, I also just don't expect that to, to change anytime soon.
4: I think um, the addresses is a good example because that specifically is one that we've we've heard so much about over the years because people find it so cumbersome. And yet, here it is. And quite honestly, I don't find it... Now that I've been using Bitcoin for you know six, seven years or whatever, it doesn't phase me at all to be copying around addresses. Um, and... Yeah, uh, and the other thing is you can... QR like- codes. I've gotten very used to QR codes and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's actually... You can, adapt. We can you, all adapt. You can
0: adapt, but also it's permissionless innovation. So if you've got some better idea, show it, show it to the world. See what they what they think. So it's it's also that permissionless innovation type thing where you can come in and say, "All right, well, uh, here's a problem. Here's my proposed solution. Let's see if it sticks."
2: Yeah, and that's something Katana and I have spoken about as well. We were looking to try and incorporate some of this into our material about how, what is the Bitcoin ethos, right? The Bitcoin mm. ethos is not, oh, I can expect other people to solve my problems for me. It's more that's like right. this is the way Bitcoin is and we're going to, you, you will have to adapt to that and and like the right culture around that because that's part of what we're trying to kind of teach in our workshop. Um, but yeah, again, we're, we're still figuring out exactly where we would fit that, like what material in, uh, but that is definitely a topic we were keen to touch on.
4: You just have to include the uh, space ghost. Uh, I'm new to Bitcoin. I'm here to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) It covers everything.
2: (laughs) Class dismissed. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the thing because it's difficult for us to take ourselves out of this because we have, you know, all four of us have by now spent thousands, literally thousands of hours spending, you know, of time learning about Bitcoin. How do you quickly and concisely condense that down into four or five hours. Yeah. That's the challenge.
4: If I've, I've kind of uh, wondered just how many times have I said the word Bitcoin <laughs> since 2012, just the word <laughs> typed it or whatever. Um, <laughs> but it,
3: it's it's that work that you guys are doing of condensing it down to four hours, which is gonna allow Bitcoin to be more socially scalable, right, where mm-hmm. n- now it's it's like you're creating a capital good that will pay massive dividends going forward, where people will be able to get caught up on what took us years, they can do it in four hours, uh, it just makes the world a lot more efficient.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's our a hope, right? And obviously, we think that's a that's a big need for right now, a lot of people just, they, they come in and they leave it on an exchange, and that's like, that is literally, you know, because we are all the hardcore people and the, probably many of the listeners of this are the more hardcore people, right? So in some ways, the people listening and are, they are not the target audience in some, in some ways. But mm-hmm. it's sort of similar to if you've listened to, say, Francis Pugliet, right, from Bull Bitcoin from Canada. He talks about this idea of trying to be the Bitcoin exchange and service that the hardcore Bitcoiners will wholeheartedly recommend to their friends. And I think it's a similar sort of strategy that Katana and I are trying to do. We're trying to be like a trusted Australian Bitcoin education company that will, our listeners and our followers will wholeheartedly say, yes, I don't have the time to go and teach you all this stuff. But if you go to these guys, I trust that they will kind of at least set you on the right pathway. And I think that is uh, essentially what we're getting at with this workshop. So it's, it's a challenge because... Part of it is teaching, like trying to impress on people. Why do they need to come to a workshop? Why should they pay money and do it? Oh, can't I just leave it on the exchange for free kind of thing? So that's the the real thing we have to try and figure out.
3: Well, to me, like what, what drives that is the number of people who've been burned by not being careful with Bitcoin. And so that you already have like a natural pool of customers, of people who they're like, all right, I accidentally lost these Bitcoin by deleting this wallet on my phone. Uh, now I know I'm going to make more mistakes going forward, so I'm going to go ahead and go uh, work with work, work with Ministry of Nodes to make sure that you know whatever it is, I'm going to be able to figure it out and not delete Bitcoin again accidentally.
4: Yeah. And I think we all we all know someone who got goxed. Yeah, well. they that <laughs> good.
3: Goxed, and then in Canada there was just one. Uh, I forget what it was. Quadriga. Quadriga. Yeah, so. I'm sure it's going to happen again at some point. Now, I it's funny to me that like it seems to have slowed down. Like if you look at the top exchanges, exchanges like I think so. Bitstamp did get hacked at one point, right? Um, and Bitfinex did get hacked at one point, but um, I don't think Kraken has Coinbase, not publicly at least. Um, but it might be the case that people are starting to get a false sense of security on these exchanges and are leaving a huge amount of money uh, exposed.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a possibility, and uh, I think it's the way the services are being built out as well it that can le- that can lead you down that pathway as well. So for example, some of the financial kind of services type ones will kind of lead you more that pathway, whereas like the whole kind of hardcore cypherpunk ones will kind of try to push you towards self-custody and self-storage and that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, to your your point earlier, there's a need for a a multitude of these options, right? We need need there to be Bitcoin financial services, but we also need there to be that option of the fully cypherpunk, let's call it option of fully self-custodying and doing your own multi-signature and things like that. Yep.
3: All right. One question here is, Pierre, by any chance, would you do something, a similar workshop locally uh, in New York? So maybe um, <laughs> uh, I've got I've got too many, too many projects already, Jim, but uh, eventually uh, we'll, we'll maybe do something. I might have moved to Austin already by the time I get around to it. honestly. And that's
0: something that we're also thinking about is how to scale this as well. Um, We understand that a lot of people in Bitcoin are also time poor as well. Um, So it's something that we'll have to figure out is how how do we then scale this education such that um, a lot of people who want to come to these workshops, we can facilitate them the best and quickest and easiest way. Um, So if we're doing one on one coaching sessions uh, for four hours, that's four hours of our time that we've, uh, sort of given up and how, how then could we reach, you know, a hundred people or well, what, you know, that's for 400 hours or whatever. So it's just, it, it's going to be, you know, a, a challenge, but we're looking at ways of how, how can we scale this and potentially that might be webinars and those sorts of things as well.
4: I think this also shows exactly why, uh, something like Ministry of Notes is necessary because uh, all of us, you know, we our DMs are open. We love answering uh, Bitcoin questions, but we simply don't have the time. So uh, that division of labor is is crucial, and it's extremely helpful to be able to be like, you know, I do not have time. I wish I could help you, but these guys definitely can.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because here's the thing, right? Like what would be ideal is, you know, it, the legends, right? Like, but obviously the legends like the Adam backs and the Greg Maxwell's and the Andrew Polsters of the world, they're more busy doing more important things. Right. And so it's like, we can kind of be the people who are trying to take some of the learnings and, you know, for example, Chris Belcher with his awesome privacy guide, and we are going to try and take some of that material and teach that to newbies. So it's kind of like we're there in the middle to try and help, kind of facilitate that information transfer down the line. All right, we got another kind of complicated question
3: here, but we'll see if we can answer it. Um, So, will there be online batch services that you can participate in to send Bitcoin with others in a batch in a particular time period as opposed to sending individual transactions? So, this sounds like a like some kind of uh batch transaction coin join setup um i haven't heard of this
2: yeah ever? i don't know if it's feasible but i mean maybe it's something like the state chains idea i haven't looked into that too much yet i'm planning to look into that a bit more um but the problem with that also from a coin join point of view is typically coin joins need to be equal outputs and so there's different uh philosophies around that as well right so wasabi go with the 0.1 um BTC and then Samurai have two pools they've got a 0.01 pool and a 5 million sats pool or 0.05 pool so yeah i guess they're the current options in terms of coin join but in terms of just batched sending I'm um, i don't i haven't i'm not aware of any services that kind of do that across different wallets right yeah
3: and then the next question's about lightning so uh multi channel stuff in lightning So basically being able to close multiple channels or open multiple channels or both in in one transaction. and like, this is, this is a big complaint of mine that this doesn't exist yet, but it's also understandable why it doesn't, which is that there hasn't been a really enough fee pressure for it to be a problem. Uh, and for the savings to actually be worth the engineering work of doing this. Uh, now, Maybe that'll change once we uh hit that limit and start getting more fee pressure. But uh the other thing too is that like the maybe this like be be even more interesting with uh taproot and aggregate aggregated schnorr signatures. So the savings there will be more significant than currently would be.
2: If actually with that right now as I understand it that there's there's this benefit that a lot of people are talking about, but I think Peter Willow was very careful to make sure that this current proposal, this music proposal does not aggregate, does not include the possibility for cross input aggregation. It's only um, inputs within your own. Uh, yeah, that'll be in the future. Yeah.
3: Um, so yeah. it
2: might be a while before this is
3: economically interesting for uh, lightning nodes to implement, because the other thing too, is that like they, y- you can get all of the benefits, like the low-hanging fruit right now by having smarter autopilot where it opens channels when it is one satoshi per byte and then it, it doesn't do any activity or tries to not do any activity uh when the mempool is spiking in the fees and that alone i think is going to cause like if enough people are using lightning uh cause the um, fee spikes to attenuate a little bit and not be uh, so so volatile
2: yeah, on, on on that topic, I also think Sergey Kotliar has got the right idea as well. He was recently speaking about how a large fraction of the actual Bitcoin on-chain transactions are inter-exchange. So if those exchanges figure out to use Liquid and Lightning, mm-hmm. then that also removes a lot of transactions off of Bitcoin's Layer 1 you know, standard transaction. And so then the fees may actually come back down and then we'll have less pressure, as you mentioned. So then it starts that whole cycle again and then we'll help, we'll need to get a whole bunch of new people in to start a new round of fee pressure to then drive the innovation on things like multi-party channels and etc.
3: Which is hilarious because like all the cashers on Twitter are like, oh, how are you going to onboard 6 billion people with, you know, one megabyte blocks? It's like, well, so far we've onboarded, uh, you know, quite a few people. So let's see how this goes. <laughs>
4: I think there's a, it, it's so great that we were able to take on these pressures too, because the amount of innovation around how to, you know, efficiently construct transactions has just been staggering. And it's, it's much more than simply like, you know, the, the straw man is, you know, just, oh, we put everything on lightning or something like that, you know? And it's like, as, as if we are relying on lightning to save us completely. Um, Really, there's so much more going on um, that, you know, no one, no one would have thought to be uh, batching transactions, despite David Harding telling them to for years and years um, until, you know, 2017 was happening. Um, So,
2: yeah, one point on that
4: going under under those pressures.
2: Yeah. One point on that as well is. The way you sort of see guys like say roger veer and whatever debated they'll sort of debate it like oh if lightning doesn't work the whole thing is over blah blah, blah. like from from their point of view it's like they almost put this they impose this extremely high bar right like if anything and roger veer should know this as well being a libertarian he should understand that uh the same people impose this kind of incredible perfect standard on the free market and not and not on the government right but the problem here is He's imposing this incredibly high standard for Lightning, but not on Bcash, right? And sort of just expecti- expecting that everything, every experience with Lightning should be perfect. And, you know, there should be no period where people are trying to figure it out, which is just completely unreasonable. Like, it's just not. And the thing is, even if Lightning doesn't work, right? And I'm a huge Lightning bull. I say that, right? But even if Lightning doesn't work, we think Bitcoin has to be kept. You know decentralized enough mm-hmm. and so that's ultimately why the block had to be had to be kept small and for those technical reasons right like the block propagation argument the argument around not uh splitting the network unnecessarily helping the main network maintain consensus these are all why you know it's not oh we need we, we have to use lightning it's more like we have to keep the block small and lightning is one way to help alleviate some of that pressure but lightning's not perfect you know
4: yeah, and, and something else along those lines, uh tying into what Pierre said is, you know, we also uh you know, uh, people people who argue against the free market expect you to have a solution for everything. Uh when the very idea of having a solution for everything implies some level of central planning, which is why we're making the free argu- you know, we're making the free argu- free market argument against in the first place. Um so, you know, likewise, you know. I don't know how exactly 6, million, six billion people will be onboarded. Uh, it's just that, yes, we have these particular constraints. You know, I, for instance, am only going, I'm, I'm going to be running a full node and that's just that. Uh, and I think a lot of other people are, and that is a constraint we have to work with and we'll see where the market goes from there. Uh, it's actually quite exciting to, you know, imagine where it might go
3: all right um stefan i've got a special gift for you uh (laughs) um we're gonna do some praxeology some Austrian economics Uh, and uh there's a jewel of a tweet that belagi just put out and he asks are there any digital assets that have encouraged longer term holding in the protocol this would not be suitable for a crypto intended as a currency but you could for example Implement a minimum 30 or 365 day holding period prior to a subsequent transfer, which kind of touches on the to me like uh, something that nobody discusses is uh, the the marginal propensity to hold a currency and what drives that and so like how long and how much cash someone's going to hold uh, and you know all the Austrian economics behind that question of cash as a way of managing risk cash as a, an option uh, etc um but yeah what's what's your immediate reaction to Balaji suggesting that uh, the way to get people to hold more is by uh, handcuffing them to to the <laughs> asset
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think it's very silly but uh, i mean it's it's i think we've spoken about this offline as well it seems like balaji can't propose a new idea without uh, proposing a shitcoin to go with it um, but the thing with that as well is, <laughs> is like um, it, it reminds me of these people who think of it like, oh, tokenomics and crypto economics and like I'm a PhD in economics and I will help design the econo- the system, you know, whatever. And they try to design the staking incentive and the whatever. But again, bring it back to and I think this is a resource you guys have often referred to as well, which is Hans Herman Hopper's. Uh, the yield from money held reconsidered. And ultimately, the reason we hold money is because of future uncertainty. And we hold that money because it, we have it, We hold a cash balance because it helps us alleviate our unease. And, and it's our ability to if I if I got in a car accident tomorrow, can I pay for my hospital bill with that cash? So same reason for that same reason, cash needs to be immediately available. Right. This idea that you could just lock it up for six months and that's going to, you know, the forced hodlings are going to make it pump the value. But ultimately, such a good is not, in my view, not likely to become a money because you cannot immediately spend it should you need to.
3: And then you would just have people doing like weird workarounds of like, oh, here's a loan that is secured by this money that will be available in 30 days. Right? Like, this, it's not, it's not like, horrific. yeah, so like, now you're, you're creating more money. So now you force your system to be fractional reserve. You know, like, it, it's, it's just a crazy. Uh,
4: but it's just, hey, it's just a thought experiment right on Twitter. it, it goes back to a, a tweet storm I had once about um, how, you know, the very point is like, we don't know what the correct balance is between savings and investment is. Um, and, like it's kind of a mistake to be trying to pull the levers to figure out what that is and like, you know, play, play central planner that way. Uh, exactly what, what this is, what this is, uh, trying to do on the other hand. The, I mean, the funny thing is like the actual, uh, sort of technology that he's describing, um, it's, it sort of can be done at the protocol level within Bitcoin. Um, but it's for people's specific, uh, you know, security needs. Um sometimes like because they actually you know want to you know keep money <laughs> from not being used uh at all uh but you know there's there's been you know talks for years about uh, covenants um as well as you know the the time lock and stuff like that um so people can implement these things but uh the way that it is framed here uh it goes back to a a common uh uh I get concerned with anyone who brings up the word incentives.
2: Yeah, typically <laughs> they, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's just like a way to view people as like these, you know, chicken. Uh, chickens. Homo economicus. That, yeah, and yeah, like a, a Skinner box. And you're just trying to get them to eat the right number of, you know, pellets or whatever. <laughs> it, it's also kind of like a form of like cargo cult economics
3: of hey look bitcoin is the, bitcoin's price is going up because people are holding it for longer periods of time okay that's what we need we need more people holding it holding whatever shitcoin for longer periods of time and then that'll cause the price to go up, <laughs> like, the, <laughs> <it> go up? <laughs> yeah uh, so but it's like it, it's also just kind of a, a fallacy of like well people people want to buy bitcoin because it's easy to sell bitcoin right and that's the only utility of a money is its liquidity yeah. and so to say that like all right well let's make it harder to sell this money and then that'll cause oh wait no that'll cause fewer people to want to buy it like there's the other part of the equation that uh, is just always seems to be missing now i i think that he would yeah. immediately yeah the
4: other other part of the equation that i think you're missing which is that when you start proposing ideas like this instead of just instead of just taking praxeology seriously and applying it, if instead you take on various uh, you know empirical approaches and all that, um as soon as you make a proposal and the empirics show that it was not really in line with reality, that opens you up to more opportunities to provide the or, or to try to come up with the um you know, uh, you know, fix right for that. Well, I think
3: this is even more perverse in Silicon Valley because there's this, uh, idea in Silicon Valley, which works well with technology, but doesn't work so well with the issue of money. But basically that, um, every, every experiment that someone runs, if it fails, it might just be because it was too early and that they need to run that experiment again. Which is a totally valid approach for uh, technology, generally speaking, uh, because the unit economics of technology change, but it is completely invalid on the issue of something like that is fundamentally about the praxeology of money, right? Which is why do people hold a money? All right, if you more, if yeah. you do, if you have the empirical approach, you're like well, we just. We need to run the experiment again because
4: the economics might have changed over the past year. It's like, no, human nature did not change over the past year. Like, I mean, is- look, money is only a technology that's you know, it's just as a social- old as man itself. Yeah, it's a social construct. We need to but- have um,
3: our friend. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Neil Woodfine's gonna get triggered. <laughs> we need to have Neil Woodfine and uh, Harari, or uh, whatever Yuval Harari, or whatever his Death name man. is, <laughs> yeah, to come on the podcast and debate the issue. Uh, what is money? Is it a social construct, or are there actual, you know, objective things that determine the shelling point?
2: Yeah. One more point I wanted to touch on about that whole uh, forced hodling shitcoin idea is. From Man, Economy and State, Rothbard actually talks about this idea of even... Okay, so you know how we as kind of people who are into Austrian economics talk about like lowering your time preference and so on. But remember as well, there is such a thing as kind of... You know, people might think, you know, theoretically, that if the government forced people to save, that that might make society do even better. But that would, even that would be an error. Reason why is because ultimately it would not be some people would win at the loss of others or in some sense and it wouldn't be like a win-win so ultimately the market is meant to be a reflection of each of our all of our aggregated in some sense individual preferences on things and if you try to force our time preference lower than what it really is then some you know like that will actually in turn cause a difference and so right now the current you know our current fiat world is our time preference has been uh, raised artificially right like it's easy to get credit but you could theoretically have a negative effect going the other way as well. Just Absolutely. another point to point out.
4: I mean, this is the same thing like uh, with, uh, you know, inflation and deflation. And yeah, I mean, this is why I talked about savings versus investments. Like, I don't know what the correct thing is. You know, like what that correct rate is. It's different for everyone. Um, Rothbard, I, uh, he also had that fantastic uh, essay early on in his career uh, called "Toward a Reconstruction of Utility and Welfare Economics," um, which was about how, like, you have to look at people's uh, actual uh, sort of displayed preferences. So you have to look at how people actually act, um, and. I guess why I bring that up is, you know, if you aren't letting people actually act in the market, how they want, how, how do you actually know you're benefiting them? Because you can come up with endless broken window scenarios where, oh, well see so-and-so was benefited from this, but you always have that unseen of, well, what did that person just want to do, except for the fact that he was forced to save, he really just wanted to buy a new Lambo. Uh, but because of capital gains taxes, he had to hold his Bitcoins way longer. And, you know, he didn't even know what to do with 20 Lambos. He just wanted one, but you kind (laughs) of forced him into that situation. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, when, when you don't, when you don't allow people to actually act with their individual preferences like that, yes, uh, you, you don't, you don't actually get the optimal except for whoever the person in, in charges. It's just according to their standards, not you know what actually benefits people.
3: But Michael, I read on Twitter that the uh, BTC core cult uh, only wants people to hodl and so um. what you're telling me right now is kind of <laughs> contradictory to that. Are you sure you don't want to like amend your statement to say that? People should be forced to hold Bitcoin.
4: Satoshi works in mysterious ways. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Satoshi is, is full of paradoxes.
3: Are you saying there might be an invisible hand that causes people to hold longer than I want them to?
4: There might just be. <laughs> they might just not want that. You know, little plastic trinket you're trying to sell. Your little black and black and yellow, uh, you know, bracelet yeah well <laughs> on open bazaar or whatever on open bazaar. <laughs> uh you got to
3: keep the circular economy going so uh katan, can you tell us about the uh node that you built uh with Ubuntu?
0: yeah, so I basically installed a i I got this cheap hardware three hundred bucks off um bargain which is uh one of our like premiere cheap place where you can buy stuff um and uh basically I put that together i understood that there was a lot of commands that i needed to get to to get to where i'm what i'm building and i forget so i just wrote up a github and a guide um for me personally to go back and refer to so if i wanted to update the next version, I was like, all right, well, what are the commands here and wh- how, how am I going to do this? So then I wrote up this guide um, and then I decided, you know what, I'll make it comprehensive for everyone, if, whoever wants to kind of just uh, learn Ubuntu, um, get off Windows or just, you know, experiment around because a lot of the software that you'll find on GitHub is for Linux only. So um, you kind of just can download it um, a- a- and kind of play, play around with it um, and, you know, i'm all for that tinkering um so i just go around and uh, whatever software i find interesting um i'll just download it have a have a have a have a geese at it um and that's not to take away from all the good stuff that like the raspberry pi is doing but at the moment well now with the uh, raspberry pi 4 it's got better specs but you can't make those mistakes with the raspberry pi um it will just it will cark itself so i think that's why i kind of Went down the path of buying this node, uh, or sorry, buying this um, uh, box, and then kind of just tinkering it with myself by, by myself, and then going from there.
2: Yeah, Katan, it might be good. Just tell them also what software do you currently kind of include yeah, part of so that? Got
0: Bitcoin Core. Um, it's got RPEC, uh Sorry, BTC RPC Explorer. Um, it's got uh, Electrum personal server. It's got. Uh, it, it, Well, I haven't put in configured Tor into there yet, but I've done that myself and I'll write up some um, material on how to do that as well. Um, And then there's, uh, what else is there? There's Electrum Wallet as well in there. Um, So how to configure Electrum Wallet with um, EPS. Uh, And then it's also got C-Lightning and Spark Wallet attached as well in there. So um, it's a full stack of how to sort of uh, get onto uh, or run your own node as well as um, run your own Lightning node as well, and how to yeah. configure that on the mainnet. So a lot, I saw a lot of things on testnet. Um, I just went full reckless and just went all, all, all into um, mainnet. So I didn't bother with testnet.
3: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I think testnet is overrated. Like, if you want testnet, just put five dollars in. Don't put five thousand dollars in. That's right. <laughs> into mainnet.
2: Yeah. And the other difficulty as well is some people might write a guide, but that guide might not necessarily teach you how to update and maintain it as new versions come out. And so hopefully the idea is with Catan's Nodebox guide is that, you know, it actually, because it also teaches you a little bit more about how to update and maintain it. And potentially if more people in the community like that, then we can sort of keep that guide updated and potentially even teach, you know, include some of that material as part of our workshop.
3: Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll have you guys back on to uh, talk nodes again soon. Uh, this is a lot of fun. And I wish you guys the best. I hope this, uh, this venture takes off and uh, keeps growing and uh, turns into a global cancer that uh, teaches people about Bitcoin.
2: <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Pierre and Michael. Thanks, right. guys. You have a good day
5: one of the most powerful tools i've used as a military leader is rehearsals i would love to hear your thoughts on
1: rehearsals so rehearsals and this is actually shocking that i've never talked about rehearsals
5: rehearsals like what like oh, we're going like to a do this like a dress you're rehearsal for it yes, yeah. and
1: they're totally critical and one of the biggest parts of preparing for an operation correctly you know we used to have this they used to say one third planning, one third gear prep, and one third rehearsals. That's how you're supposed to spend your time mm. and it's it's a It's a rule that gets violated very often because people spend too much time planning mm-hmm. and not enough time rehearsing. Mm-hmm. so we would always I would always try and push the rehearsals as much as possible and I would when I was a when I was in charge of troops I would try and push rehearsals and then when I was training troops I would try and get them to rehearse but it's hard like I said people get drawn into the planning piece mm. but a plan without a rehearsal is not a plan mm. really so you know definitely Use the rehearsals rehearse as much as you can be hard on yourself during rehearsals rehearse contingencies That's something we used to do that. I was pretty intent on was rehearsing the contingencies. So what could go wrong here? What could go different at the target area? What's a different alternate route that we might have to th- hit the target from and just just go through a couple of those contingencies and? Actually when you do that make sure you if you rehearse a couple of contingencies, if you rehearse your your main plan let's say you walk through it 3 times mm. then you rehearse 2 or 3 contingencies go back and do the main plan two more times yeah, just yeah. so that's what they leave with oh yeah so so you want that in their it, heads yeah. they you want that in their heads because otherwise there'll be a little bit of confusion but you definitely want to rehearse some contingencies as well and we also would rehearse the things that were the things that happened all the time so even you know, a good example was was like our breach team, which is the team that kind of goes in to blow up a door so you can get in the building, and they have their little procedures. We'd re- that breach breach team would rehearse over and over and over again, so that they're really just smooth and good, and they don't have to talk and they can do things very quickly. And mm. and you know, the way we got into vehicles and out of vehicles, we always rehearse that, even though we'd rehearsed it. By I mean, by the end of deployment, you've rehearsed that hundreds of times, and you mm. still go, All right, "Hey, dismount the vehicles." And and get in formation. Because it's just another time, more muscle memory for everybody. And you could do it with all the all the stuff that you do in the field, you know, whether you're calling in a helicopter for a casualty evacuation, how you're gonna set up that landing zone, you rehearse that a few times. Just do it, you know, a couple times before you roll out on an operation. That way when it happens, everybody knows what to do. Mm. And this obviously translates directly to Everything else, I mean, especially in business, I mean, we we work with construction companies and, you know, I talk, a lot of times talk about safety with construction companies because they lose lives, they lose money, they lose jobs because they have, if they have safety incidences, and how do they handle when they happen? What do you do? So, you know, rehearsing the emergency procedures of when something happens, rehearsing the setup before you start a certain type of, you know, construction operation, that's good. Even with the sales world like when I when I you know a lot of teams that Every business has well just about every business has some sort of sales force in it right Mm -hmm. where that are trying to sell things And how do you rehearse for them? Well? You you do some role-playing where you know somebody gets on and plays the super hard client, you know Mm -hmm. Somebody gets on and complains how do you lay let's rehearse? Let's let's, how you gonna talk through when somebody calls up to complain Mm -hmm. and in two or three iterations People will improve Mm. on how they handle complaints and how they handle a super hard client, how they overcome some objections, but you do that through rehearsal and it makes you, just makes you better. You know, it's, um, you know, that the, I mean, another rehearsal would be like a, we work with the gas oil industry. Mm. So how are they going to handle when there's a leak? How are they going to handle when there's some kind of a ecological problem or a fire? What are you going to do? You know? oh, you're gonna dial this number. Okay, let's check that that number works. How long has that number been in this little pamphlet that's been sitting by the phone? You mm-hmm. know when's the last time that got checked out? Uh, where's where is the communications nodes? What if they get hit? What's the alternative plan? So just yeah, rehearsals are awesome. The finance world we see it as well. What kind what if there's a drastic downturn in the market or a drastic upturn? Do you have a rehearsed plan of what you're going to do, who you're going to contact if you have decisions to make, triggers have been hit? Just rehearse that stuff. Yeah, Just rehearse it so everybody knows, and it's very, very helpful. I know when I was in charge of training, I had a very uh, very squared away and fired up uh, Corman, who is our medical support, and he just... You know, I I talked about rehearsals one time or whatever and he came to me and said hey We're gonna rehearse all of our casualty evacuations for all of our different training sites Mm. So and he did and he'd come back and he'd find you know Hey, guess what this is what I found on this one the life flight that we were supposed to call didn't exist anymore Mm. They went out of business or they changed their number or whatever or this LZ that we were planning on using has a house on it now Mm. You know, And so he found real stuff and you know what this particular guy great guy he in that time, he got all those casualty evacuation plans squared away. And in that, in that year, we actually did two ca- real casualty evacuations from training sites for mm. real critical injuries. And both of them went super smooth all because of his efforts. Mm. And they ran full rehearsals, mm. full rehearsals. And so just, just that kind of thing. It, it, those things save lives for sure, mm. just doing those full rehearsals. So yes, rehearse, rehearse, and rehearse in anything that you're doing, because it'll make you better. Yeah, especially where you,
5: I would think that anytime you're in a situation where being on the spot is a big factor, you know, where, where you have to make a decision quick. You know, you don't have a day or two days mm-hmm. to, you know, analyze and make a decision. Um, I f- feel like that would,
1: rehearsal would be a critical part of preparing for something like that. Yeah, and, and you can do that with the decision making, sure. You can set up all kinds of rehearsals for decision-making for decision, ma- for decision making in whatever industry you're in. just right. But what I like to do is make those decisions critical, make those challenging, so that you're putting somebody on the spot, you're putting a leader in the spot. And I'll tell you what, one thing that's very cool about this, and this is something you could carry over to everything you do, it goes to decentralized command, it goes to instilling initiative in people. Mm-hmm. You run rehearsals where the only solution is to go outside the box of the plan. Oh, during the rehearsal. During the rehearsal yeah, yeah. or a rehearsal where the only solution is to disobey what the order is. Oh, dang, yeah. Because, and and the reason I'm bringing this up specifically is because you're talking about Rehearsing when there's decisions that need need to be made so this is going a little bit from rehearsal almost into a training scenario Right, right? so we're getting away from rehearsal where you're rehearsing a specific operation into a training scenario Mm -hmm. where what you're trying to do in training is you're trying to get people to think You're trying to get people to think on their own. And that is the most beautiful thing that you want as a leader is you want all your people thinking. And you want them to be able to think with a completely open mind, a mind that's been completely freed from constraints. Mm -hmm. And the way that you do that, one of the ways that you do that, one of the methodologies you can use to do that is everybody's got their box, right, that they're stuck in. Mm -hmm. So you formulate a problem that the only way that they're gonna solve the problem is to get outside of that box. And you know, one of, the, one of the best ones is you put somebody in a situation where you put parameters on them. Mm. And you say, hey, no matter what, you're not allowed to go across this line. Mm. And then you put them in a situation where they have to cross that line.
5: Mm.
1: And the only way they're gonna win is to cross that line. And then they come back and they say, well, you didn't, told me not to cross that line. You know what? I didn't tell you to get your, all your guys killed. Or I didn't tell you to, to not make that investment even in this critical situation. Or I didn't tell you not to do that if we had an ecological disaster that was going on. Mm. right? So you need to train people to use common sense. Mm. That's what you want to train them to do. And it's very hard. You'd be surprised at how, at how constrained people's brains get. Mine, yours, everybody, we get stuck. And so it's great to do drilling and training where you are actually opening up the mind and freeing the mind from any kind of constraint, Mm. where you can see things from varied perspectives that are different from your own, and you can see outlets and solutions that you would never have seen if you trapped yourself inside your box. Mm. And those are the kind of training scenarios that are outstanding. And those are the kind of training scenarios that make people... Better leaders and better decision-makers Because the key thing that they learn how to do is they learn how to detach even at that moment We talk about it all the time Mm. But if you can't detach from that situation And you can't detach far enough away from the picture to see that the only way you're gonna solve this problem is by going across that line That you were told not to go across Mm. If you can't make that detachment, you're never gonna cross that line. You're never gonna open your mind You're never gonna see that solution And that is a horrible trap to be stuck in. Yeah. On the movie Boiler Room, where they, during the training,
5: they give them, you know, it's a sales thing. So they give them this index, all these index cards with rebuttals, right? Like, oh, my wife won't let me buy this. Right, right. You know. Oh, your wife
1: runs your family? Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You ever see that movie, Boiler Room? I have seen it. I have seen it. It's dope. Yeah, there's some good, uh, good training in there on how to overcome those objections, and people become better at it. And the more the more you give them to chew on, the better they'll get at it. It's the same thing where you're trying to give people the tools. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I want to go into that scenario and I want to ask them a question when I'm training them that they've never, I want to give them an objection that they've never heard before. So let them think on their feet. Let them see, let them step back and say, hey, you know what, this one's not on the cards. Where am I going to go with it?
5: right yeah the card seems like that that would fall within
1: rehearsal right 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 i mean it's
5: expanded rehearsal
1: yeah yeah, i I bet you they get 95 percent yeah yeah of the of the common objections that you get you know you talk to a car salesman they hear x amount of objections you talk to a a phone salesman or an internet Mm -hmm. salesman or a you know, whoever calls you up on the phone, they hear the same. the The solar people, right? The yeah. solar people call you all the time, or the power company calls you with this, or the cable company, the other cable company calls you with their offer. They hear the same objections all the time. You know what I mean? So they train for those for sure. Bro, I, was and of, I
5: was coming out of Vons, and they were like, "Hey, you know, hey, come here. I got some. Check this out. It's um the ones where you can do, sponsor a child. One of those kinds right. of things, right? right. So." I was like, "Hey, you know, yeah, you know, we 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 donate, but we like to research and look into." And before I could really finish the sentence, I was going to say, "We," I like to look into all the programs that we donate right. to or think or consider donating to. Before I could finish the sentence, or right when I finished the sentence, he was like, "A lot of people are concerned about where the money goes and all the stuff." And he knew everything. I was like, oh, these guys are getting advanced, slick, right there. yeah, man." That's slick. how he's prepared. He rehearsed. Good for him. Was trained.